So it is with, our, with great pleasure that I have uh, the honor to introduce a tremendous guest today. Would you please give a warm TLC welcome to Dr. Craig Hazen. This is, this is a little bit like being on a Leno show, man. A lot of good jokes. Wow. Well, thanks for having me here. We've had a ball this weekend, and I'm really impressed. Uh, there aren't many churches in the country that are hosting events quite like this. Whole weekends devoted to uh, clear Christian thinking. And in case you're new to the whole discipline of apologetics, it's, it's, it's good occasionally to define what that is because... Uh, people wondering, apologetics, is that, is that where we apologize for being, you know, Jesus lovers? Is that how that works out? No, it really is an archaic term, unfortunately, that we're trying to sort of renew into, uh, you know, the modern vocabulary. But it simply means giving, re giving reasons for faith. And part of my presentation this morning is to show you how Christianity does that really better than, than almost every other world religion. Christianity is like centered on that, yet we've forgotten that over the years, so I'll, I'll address a little bit of that, but I'm thrilled to be here. You all look very friendly. I don't always go to friendly places. I get chased off of some wonderful campuses and so on <clears throat> when I think I'm being, you know, winsome and, you know, ambassadorial on these campuses. Sometimes I get chased off. In fact, uh, I was up in, I was up in uh, the state of Washington. Now, that's not too far from here. You're from Washington. Now, Washington, from what I understand, is one of the most unchurched uh, states in the country. And so if you go to Washington State, you can feel a little bit of, you know, spiritual oppression. Uh, but then if you go to Olympia, the state capital, it is one of the most, uh, you know, spiritually dank places in the state of Washington. And then if you go to a secular college campus in Olympia, you have hit spiritual rock bottom in America, you know. <laughs> And so I got invited to give a talk on a campus in Olympia, Washington. Some, there's three or four guys who started a Christian club. Now, they were Christians, but I don't think they were all that interested in starting a club. Uh, they discovered, because they were business majors, that if they start a club, they have access to the, the funds of the associated students, you know? And so they figured it was their way to bring in a speaker that they, they wanted to hear and throw a party of some sort, you know? So uh, I, I arrive at the airport, they pick me up, and they're driving me to the campus. Uh, we arrive around lunchtime, it's some sort of lunchtime lecture series that they've set up. And uh, I'm walking into the building where I'm going to give the lecture, and I see, I see my face on the wall, okay, in a poster. But there were flames around my face, okay? And the theme which this church will actually resonate with, given your barbecue coming up, is, was come barbecue the Christian. That was the theme of the event. See, they're busy. They knew how to get out of crowd. They must have been marketers, you know, or something. So come barbecue the Christian. And so the, the deal, and you, by the way, when you walk into the building, you could smell barbecue, you know. Uh, they had wheelbarrows full of the best chicken wings in the city coming, and everybody knew about this place, so everybody would show up at this event to eat those chicken wings, you know? And the, the smell of these wings was just wafting through the building, and people, you know, like, like Pepe Le Pew, were just, just like floating into the room. It was a big lecture hall uh, in like the science corridor of the campus, and it was jammed, packed. Every, everybody wanted the chicken wings, you know? I've, uh, there were some there to actually barbecue the Christian. In fact, the whole atheist club was sitting in the front row with t-shirts on. That happens almost every campus I speak at. You know, the Atheist Club is there with T-shirts on in the front row. And honestly, I'm so glad they're there. You know? uh, so the deal was I had to speak. Uh, well, I didn't speak at all, really. They just wanted me to give like a five-minute opening statement and then just field questions for an hour. If people can ask questions for an hour, they get the chicken wings, you see. And you ring a bell, and they all salivate, and they all run and get the chicken wings. <laughs> So I gave my five-minute opening talk, and then uh, they started asking questions. And uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and i got to tell you, the questions have changed over time. They've gotten, um, they've gotten stupider. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean your text question is going to be stupid. <laughs> but on these college campuses, the, text que the, <laughs> the questions have gotten strange and weird. It was as if everybody in the room got all of their knowledge of Christianity from reading the Da Vinci Code. I'm not kidding. 
Almost everything had to do with some sort of Da Vinci Code scenario, you know? Uh, that's a sad state of affairs. In fact, I remember at one point, uh, uh, they kind of stopped asking questions because they ran out of fuel, you know? <laughs> they just closed the Da Vinci Code, set it aside. No, they, they just stopped. You could tell people are like, oh, we've got to ask questions. Ask them a question. So it was very strange. In fact, some of the questions were so bad that I had to help them ask a better question. <laughs> wow, sir, I don't totally understand that. But you know what? It would be a lot more challenging if you were to formulate it this way. You know what I didn't know? Uh, it was very strange. But at one point, that, it, it dried up, and, and they're stretching for questions. One guy, I noticed him nudging his neighbor. He goes, ask the question. The guy goes, okay. He said, yes, sir. And he goes, um, do, you, do you believe in baptism? I said, sir, not only do I believe in it, I've seen it done. <laughs> you know, it's funny because they burst out laughing too. And, and we had about 15 minutes left and like their shields went down once they started laughing. And they started asking a little more serious questions about like the spiritual life instead of their, their, their pet things that they thought would nail a Christian to the wall, you know. And so we actually had a pretty good conversation. But it was funny. Finally, finally it ended, you know, everybody you know, wiped the sweat from their brow. And, and, and then the, the moderators released them to the chicken wings. And people were stomping on each other, you know, to get to the chicken wings. And there was this, oh, by the way, there must have been, like, a lot of architecture majors or structural engineering majors there. Because they gave them little plates. Yet they were able to build towers <laughs> of chicken wings, you know. In fact, I remember one lady, she had a big tower of chicken wings, and she was like one of the first ones at the table. And I was talking to somebody over here, and I could see her like coming around, you know, to ask me a question. She hadn't asked a question during the open forum, and so she was going to ask now. And she's got a big plate of wings, and she's eating them already. She's heading for me, and she's eating them. And she's already got schmutz on her face, you know, and she's waving a wing at me. She goes, here's my deal, you know. Here's my deal. Uh, uh, there, there are the reason I don't believe the Bible is because there aren't enough women in it. <laughs> and I thought she was kidding, really, so I was kind of messing with her, you know, like joking back, oh, I totally know what you mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, like, instead of the three wise men, it should have been the three wise women. She goes, yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I said, yeah, I mean, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because, um, uh, I mean, women ask for directions, so they would have arrived on time, right? Not only that, they would have brought practical gifts, for goodness sake. They would have brought a baby blanket, you know, and, and a casserole, for goodness sake. And they would have helped clean the stable and deliver the baby. It makes a lot of sense. And she's like, that's what I'm talking about. And she's like, what's up? Eating her chicken. Oh. Craziness. I, 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 my dear Christian brothers and sisters, I do wonder what we are afraid of. You know, who is a secular campus? Honestly, it's not that challenging. You know? In fact, I, I, I like these little apologetics conferences because it really raises the bar very quickly. In fact, I make a big claim down at Biola University where I teach. We have big events all the time, and, and usually I'm the MC, and I'll, I'll do some promotion, and I'll promote our certificate program in Christian apologetics. And what I say is, if you take our certificate program, which is open to everybody, if you take our certificate program in Christian apologetics, you will rise to the top 5% of religiously literate people in the world. And people go, wow, that must be some certificate program you have there. And I say, you know what, it's a very good certificate program. But the comment was not about the certificate program. The comment was really about the incredibly low level of understanding about these things out in the general public. And so that's an encouragement to you that even if you read a few books and sort of, and, and listen to some CDs or watch some DVDs and get up to speed a little bit, um, you can make a decided nuisance of yourself for, of, you know, in the name of Jesus in all kinds of situations, you know. Uh, in fact, people who've done our certificate program, I, I we have a name for them now. We call them the water cooler gurus of the workplace because it's so funny. They're, they're like confident and calm. And so, when something big hits the newspaper, like cloning or life on Mars, or, you know, they found the bone box of Jesus' family or something, you know, people rush to them during breaks at work or during the lunch hour and ask them all the questions, you know, that they, about which they've been reading in the newspaper. Yeah. And uh, so we call them the water cooler gurus because they can calmly just give some answers. And if they don't have answers, they know where to get some answers. And so 
But that's the nature of Christianity. We are actually a knowledge tradition, and we're, we're actually supposed to know things. It's not about blind faith or blind leaping. Christianity has never been about that. As I, as I quoted yesterday in our little conference, uh, there's this great line by Puddinhead Wilson in one of Mark Twain's books, you know. Puddinhead Wilson says, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. And that's the working definition of certainly most secular people when they look at uh, those of us who are religious, right? But that's also the working definition of a lot of Christians, you know, who really haven't had an opportunity to, to discover the, the tremendous knowledge base of Christianity. Uh, if you weren't there yesterday, I did a presentation on the resurrection of Jesus. And I gave evidence, and, and my, my argument was basically, uh, I took the evidence provided by our harshest critics. Even the critics think that there's cer certain things that are true that surround these, this purported resurrection of Jesus. And I made the case from the critics' evidence. And I think even using the critics' evidence, you still get a resurrection. That's how powerful the case is. I believe that the resurrection is, a, is the best attested fact of the ancient world. It's, it's really tremendous. Sometimes I'm on college campuses and people say, hey, you know, uh, you're talking about a miracle there. You need, like, special evidence. I don't know how special it is, but I think it's at least a little bit special. I mean, God has left a tremendous trail of evidence back through history testifying about these things. Now, I did my doctoral work in religious studies at, at UC Santa Barbara, and that was great fun. I had an opportunity to study some, with some of the leading lights in the various world religions, like you know, Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Native American traditions and Mormonism, you name it. Got a chance to have a look at it up close and personal with great scholars in the field and with devotees on the ground. And, and through that exercise, you know, going through a whole doctoral program and, and sort of comparing my my Christian beliefs with these other faiths, I learned an awful lot. In fact, I ended up learning, learning an awful lot about Christianity. In fact, I'll save you the trouble. I hope some of you go on to do doctorates like that, but, but in case you don't here, let me boil down my, my comparative experience for you. And here it is. Christianity is um, weird. We, we signed up for a strange one we did. Uh, Christianity doesn't fit that religion box. You know that there's this box called religion, we know what it's all about. And when you try to put Christianity into it, you have to really stuff hard. And, and you know, there's still you know, limbs flailing and feet sticking out. You can never get it in the box fully because it just doesn't fit very well. You have to start cutting off limbs and so on and, and throwing the dead parts in if you really want to make it fit the religion box. Christianity is a bit bizarre. It, it's, it's really set apart from the great world religious traditions in, in rather dramatic fashion. And yesterday, by talking about the resurrection, I talked about the feature number one, really, it's in your notes, feature number one that sets Christianity apart from the other great world religious traditions, and that is Christianity is testable. It's testable. You can offer evidence for it, and you can offer evidence against it, and the evidence means something. All right? In other words, we're talking about objective evidence here. Uh, there's, there's wonderful subjective experience, and some would call that evidence as well, and it is a form of evidence. Uh, but some religions are totally immersed in the subjective, like Zen Buddhism, for instance. You know, uh, you know at the end of the day, a Zen Buddhist is not going to really care about the historical evidence surrounding uh, the life of the Buddha. You know, whether he really uh, taught the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, and whether he gave his you know, famous sermon at the Deer Park in Benares, and, and so on, uh, the, the real existence of a Bodhi tree, and so on. You know, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is the inner experience of the Zen Buddhist. Is that Zen Buddhist moving closer to enlightenment? You know, but it's all about internal experience. There's no sort of objective way you can measure that. I mean, uh, there's no probe you can take, you know? You can get it from your doctor and you can, you can stick it into a person and, and discover whether they're moving spiritually in one direction or another. There's no objective kinds of measurements like that. But Christianity is a little bit weird. In fact, let me, let me demonstrate this by reading to you one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. You don't find something like this in the Bhagavad Gita or the Buddhist Tripitaka or the, the, the Quran or the Book of Mormon. Uh, this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Check this out. I read it yesterday during our conference, but it bears another reading. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 12. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about uh, resurrection. And uh, trying to figure out why I would call this the strangest passage in all of religious literature. Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Huh. More than that, he continues, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, why would I call that one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature? Well, really, the Apostle Paul was a madman at that point in terms of the way we think religion operates. If you're going to go out and start your own religion, by the way, there's big money in that. You know? It's funny because as a grad student in religious studies, I'd often sit during, you know, uh, the more boring graduate seminars kind of mapping out how to start my own religion, you know? Uh, and you can really learn a lot from, like, L. Ron Hubbard, you know? He's, he really developed quite a, it's a strange one, but uh, it's one that makes a lot of money, and that's probably the end goal of your religion that you're inventing, right? So, if you're going to invent a religion, don't do what the Apostle Paul did, for goodness sakes. He set it up as testable. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, Christianity is bunk. It's just not true. Oh, that actually leaves a lot of people feeling insecure very often, you know? Wow, I don't like that kind of testability. Well, the Apostle Paul was not afraid to say such things. Why? Because he had seen with his own eyes the risen Jesus. It was so impactful on him that he was converted from a, a persecutor of the church, somebody who was, wanted to gather up the Christians and, and do them in, to somebody who was boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus throughout the Mediterranean region and, and really was the uh, sort of the gas pedal for the early church. How did that transformation take place? He saw the risen Jesus. By the way, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, you can't imagine Paul being transformed. You can't imagine him running out into the Mediterranean world and planting churches everywhere he went and dying on behalf of the faith. You just can't imagine that happening. Uh, this resurrection thing really is central. In fact, it reminds me, I, I gave a lecture at the UCLA School of Medicine one time. You, you didn't go to UCLA, did you? You did. I gave it in the anatomy lecture hall. You know, it's, it's, have you ever been in an anatomy lecture hall? There, there's a slab and, and they, you, from which you lecture, and then the room goes like straight up in the sky. You lecture to people up there because they could look down and, and see the slab and what you've just dissected, you know. Uh, so I was invited to give a, a lecture during a lunchtime lecture series, and it was getting near Easter, so they called up, you know, Biola University to find out if there's some sort of Bible believer, Jesus-loving guy there who could come in and give a talk on the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought, wow, I'll, I'll do that. I said, sure. In fact, I remember driving to UCLA thinking, you know, um, this makes a lot of sense. I'm glad they asked me to do this because if dead people can come back to life, young medical students ought to know something about that. <laughs> so I got there, and, and here, here, was the, here was the outline that I wrote on a cocktail napkin or something. It was, it was uh, Jesus was alive at point A, dead at point B, and alive again at point C. Uh, you know, that is basically the lecture I gave. I just filled in the evidence. And uh, without a lot of rhetorical flourishes or jokes, these were serious medical students. And uh, then I just left it hanging there. They were stunned. I was stunned that they were stunned. In fact, it was a lunchtime series, and they were all eating sandwiches. I could tell what kind of sandwich they were eating because their mouths were hanging open. You're like, tuna, you know. <laughs> So I, I didn't have a lot of time for Q&A, and I couldn't really get the sense of why they were stunned. And then, uh, so we had to call it quits, and a, a gaggle of them rushed forward and started peppering me with questions. And I got a sense of why they thought it was strange. 
This one guy goes, okay. He goes, I, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I memorized Bible verses, and I went Awana badges and all this kind of stuff, you know? He goes, but, but you're making it sound very different. You're, you're making it sound like it's, like it's true, true. <laughs> you know, he obviously wasn't a, a, a philosophy major as an undergraduate, you know, but... But what was he wrestling with? He was, he was wrestling with the idea that, that you're making it sound like I can know it to be true using the same methods of investigation that I use in medical science or in crime scene investigations or in courts of law or in history, historical work or in astronomy and so on. He goes, I am re-intrigued by this. You see, the point is that Christianity is testable and so you can actually investigate it. That leaves us a little insecure but at the same time, it leaves us at a point that if we do good investigation, honest research, we can know whether this really happened or not. I've done that kind of work, and I know that Jesus came back from the dead. Notice I didn't say believe. I know that Jesus came back from the dead. What do I mean by knowledge? I mean that I have excellent reason to believe that that happened. In fact, it's, it's the only explanation historically that makes sense. I know it involves a miracle, and that's got special problems, but not enough problems for me to discount the thing. I think Jesus was alive at point A, dead at point B, and alive again at point C. I think I can know that to be true. Christianity is testable. We can investigate it and know whether or not it's true. Uh, when I was, uh, I got another call in my office at Biola one day. This, this one wasn't from UCLA. It was from a local community college, and they were doing a series on world religions. <clears throat> And when they get towards the end of the term, they like to invite in various representatives of world religions. So they were calling me to come in and uh, to be an end-of-term speaker on, like, fundamentalist Christianity. By the way, it's so funny that they called Biola. You know, we have, like, 300 faculty. And they, they you know, some guy says, hey, it's Biola University. I'd like to speak with a fundamentalist, you know. And the operator goes, one moment, please, click, you know, and it <laughs> transfers it to me, you know. <clears throat> So I'm on the phone with this guy. I said, I would love to come give a little talk on, you know, the American fundamentalist movement and so on. Uh, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'll be down there. It was an early morning class, just a couple of days away. And so I remember driving down there. And uh, it, was a, it was a pretty big lecture hall. I was surprised, given it was an early morning class. I mean, it started like at 8.30. And, and, and the room was filling up, too. So it turns out that the students were very interested in this topic, and they would even turn out early for it. Now, the good news is, you know, they, they had... They had cups of Starbucks coffee that tall, you know. So it wasn't going to be long before, you know, everybody was flying high. So uh, <laughs> it's so funny. I remember they introduced me as some sort of, I don't remember the exact words, but it sounded to me like uh, this is, uh, you know, Craig Hazen. He probably memorized Bible verses at Bill's, you know, Bible college and feed lot, you know. That's the way it sounded. I don't remember what it was. But it wasn't a very flattering introduction. And, and the professor, he looked terrible. I thought he had the flu, you know. Ooh, didn't want to shake his hand, you know. And he read this thing, and he just goes, he, he walks to the end of the row of first chairs. He sits down and puts his head down, you know. He looked terrible. Uh, it, it turned out later, I asked around, and it, it, he was probably hung over because towards the end of the term, he doesn't have to teach, and so he goes out all night chasing girls and drinking, you know. And so when I saw him do that, I go, you know what, I have free reign. You know, I don't really want to teach on fundamentalism, so I, I just asked the students, I go, hey, I could, I could give you a lecture on fundamentalism, but perhaps you'd like to do this instead. What if I took you on a little journey? What if, what if we explored the idea of how a thoughtful person would go about a religious quest, right? I mean, here you are at the, at the college, you're studying art history and biology and economics and all kinds of things, and you have to engage your mind constantly. How would a thoughtful person go about a religious quest? And they're like, yeah, that sounds kind of good. And you could tell the Starbucks was kicking in because they were starting to sit up straighter and, yeah, let's do that. I go, oh, okay, that's what we'll do instead. I looked over, the professor still had his head down, clear path. Well, let's do that then. I go, um, but I was totally making this up. Uh, but, but this whole experience I'm describing to you ended up becoming uh, the, the, this novel I wrote called Five Sacred Crossings, you know, because it was such a bizarre experience. You know, I just took the ideas that I think the Lord was actually giving to me at the time and put them in this, uh, this novel. So here I am, and uh, I said, okay, it seems to me that if you're a thoughtful person on a religious quest, 
that it makes perfect sense that you would start your quest with Christianity. That's, that's kind of how they looked, you know, like, you know, wait. Then this one guy, who's like my foil for the morning, he ends up being a character in the novel. His name's Darren in the novel. I don't know what his name was. He was a skateboard guy. He had, like, long, stringy hair, but he was a lot smarter than he looked, you know. Uh, my theory, which I ended up writing in the book, that he was, he was probably a Stanford dropout of some sort. He had spent too much time surfing, and his dad wouldn't let him back into Stanford or pay the tuition until he actually made some good grades in a community college. He was that kind of guy. And he stood up quickly and goes, oh, now wait a minute. Uh, here you are. I thought you weren't going to do a lecture on fundamentalism. And the first thing out of your mouth is a thoughtful person on a religious quest would obviously start their quest with Christianity. What's that about? I go, well, let me, let me give you a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I think you'll, you'll see that it makes perfect sense. Reason number one is that Christianity is testable. Christianity is testable. I've already covered that, right? Uh, you, get, you can offer evidence for it. You can offer evidence against it. And you can really learn about this in a finite amount of time. It's not going to take you, you know, uh, many lifetimes to try to get your, your mind around this. It might take you a couple of days. It might take you... 20 years if you really want to do an in-depth study of the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. So there's a lot to explore there, but at least it's explorable. I said, if you, if you want to start with, say, a certain forms of Buddhism, I mean, you've got a long haul. Because I've talked with some pretty savvy Buddhist teachers, and I've actually asked them, how many, uh, how many rotations on the cycle of samsara will it take before you're thrown off into nirvana? And I remember one guy saying, oh... You know, I've always thought it would be about 1 times 10 to the 60th power of lifetimes. So you can see the advantage of starting your quest with Christianity. At least you can, you can look into it, and if you find it's false, you can shove it aside and move on to something else. Like, oh, okay, well, we'll buy that. All right, so Christianity is testable. That's the first thing that I would say sets Christianity apart from the other great religious traditions. The second thing is that in Christianity, salvation is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. That's a, that's a huge deal. I don't think we make enough of that in the Christian church because most people think Christianity is about doing stuff to please God, you know? Really, that, that's everybody's basic first impression of Christianity. But that's really not the case. As, you, as you've seen in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Christianity is a bit bizarre. In that passage, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one should boast. Now think about it. There, there's no crawling over jagged rocks for miles to lay some offering in a temple. No, no sitting in arthritic lotus positions for hours on end, you know, in hope of inching your way towards enlightenment. None of that. It is a free gift given to you from a gracious heavenly Father. By the way, that is also the great equalizer, isn't it? I mean, there's no spiritual superstardom in Christianity because you are all sinners who need to be saved by grace. And it's funny how there's always a sort of superstar system in so many other uh, world religions, you know. And if you go to India, you know, you'll hear about a guru in the town uh, you know, one village over who can levitate. You know, he's really got the goods, you know. And so that you can, you can eliminate that. And plus, it's, it's, because it's free, it's open to everybody, whether, you're, whether you have your full mental capacities or not, or whether you're fully, you know, physically abled or not. It doesn't matter. Whether, whether you're white, black, uh, male, female, it doesn't matter. It's all, you're all equal in God's sight. We're all sinners who are in need of his free gift. Of salvation. So that's something that's rather dramatic, and it, I've searched the world over looking for something that compares to the Christian idea of the free gift of salvation from God. There are a couple of contenders out there. I found one in, in one form of Hinduism, one in one form of Buddhism, but they really don't compare to the, the form I'm talking about in Christianity. So it's, it's, it is something unique to Christianity and sets it apart. The third thing I told those students, the third reason that, that you ought to start your spiritual quest with Christianity is this. Uh, with Christianity, you get an amazing worldview fit. You get an amazing worldview fit. Uh, what I mean by that is, is Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. 
Now, I remember an old skateboard guy leapt to his feet. Oh, man, how in the world are you going to demonstrate that? There are a lot of facts in the world, man. And, and how are you going to show us that Christianity lines up with all of them? I said, you know, you, get, you have an excellent point. I, I don't think I can. I run a master's degree program in Christian apologetics, and, and I don't think we even cover all of the points there, certainly. Uh, but let me give you one. Let me give you one a very troubling example, something that, that confounds the best of us, and that is the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. The problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Uh, does Christianity paint a picture of that that matches the way the world really is? Well, it does. Uh, as a Christian, we actually think that evil, pain, and suffering are real. They're real. Uh, in Eastern religious traditions, uh, part of the process, and this isn't universal in Eastern religions, but it's, it's, it's probably the, the majority view, uh, in order to deal with evil, pain, and suffering, you simply have to rethink about them and in terms of, of illusions. If you can understand them as illusions, they will fade away. They will melt away like the morning dew. They will, they will kind of slide off the table, and you'll be in much better shape. That's how you deal with evil, pain, and suffering. And I, I told the students, I don't think that's adequate. I don't think that's painting a picture of the way the world really is. And I gave them an example. Say, say uh, an elderly woman walks through that door back there in the classroom, and, and she has a cane, and she makes her way down the steps, and she sits in the front row. Well, this is unusual. And I said, uh, Madam, what's your story? And she stands up, and she tells us a gripping tale of the Holocaust, right? I mean, she was a young girl in some, uh, you know, Polish village, and... Uh, uh, you know, Nazis come in and they start hauling people away, putting them in boxcars and sending them to death camps. And it's just the most grisly experience you could possibly imagine. People are dying in the boxcars. Uh, once they get to the camp, they just throw the bodies off and these people are herded up and they separate certain ones out and the rest go off to just be killed almost immediately. And this young girl uh, ends up surviving long enough so that the Russian army uh, arrives and liberates the camp, but there she is standing, nearly naked, starving, and completely alone in the world because her family has been killed off, and everybody in her Polish village has been killed off. What are you going to say to her? Are you going to say to her, you know, cheer up, lady, you know, turn that frown upside down? <laughs> no, that, that's just ridiculous. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what Oprah would say to her if she went on the Oprah show. You know, would, would Oprah go that direction? Maybe. I don't know. But that, that's a basic approach to evil, pain, and suffering that Oprah would embrace. But it doesn't work. It doesn't paint a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. This woman really suffered. And that has to be acknowledged. Christianity takes a very different approach to this. When we see a person suffering like that, we don't call it an illusion and brush it aside or tell the person to change their thinking about their, their terrible pain in their life. We get down with them in the pain and bear them up the best we can in the name of Jesus. That's what Christians do. We don't brush it aside or rename it or tell the person to get a life. We bear them up as best we can. And we worship a God who one day will wipe away every tear and correct every injustice and make all things right. That is the great hope. And I think that's a bold and, and a realistic way to confront evil, pain, and suffering. And by the way, we worship a Savior who himself suffered. He knows this kind of pain and anguish and frustration and, and a sort of explosion of, of great salvation plans. He was murdered, and he knows this kind of pain and this kind of evil. Uh, it reminds me of a famous line by C.S. Lewis, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, that is the sun, but because by it I see everything else. It's a comment about the Christian view of the world matching the way the world really is, right? It's not just because I see the sun that I believe in it, but because by it I see everything else. And the Christian worldview helps us not only to, to understand the basic gospel elements, but to understand how the world really works in ways that are better than other worldviews. The fourth reason... I remember originally I had five reasons. I had to lop off one, but, I'll, um, but you can find it in the... It actually makes its way into the novel if you want to get it there. But the fourth reason uh, that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start their quest with Christianity is this. Christianity has Jesus at the center. 
Christianity has Jesus at the center. Well, you can imagine that sent old surfboard guy or skateboard guy up to his feet again. Oh, my goodness. You waited till the last minute, didn't you? You waited until the last minute to play the Jesus card. Oh, my goodness. You had us going there. I was actually buying into some of what you're saying, but now you play the Jesus card. And I go, oh, my goodness. What have you been learning in this class? What have you been learning? And I look, the teacher saw his head down. I'm all right. So what, what have you been learning? How, don't you know that Jesus is the universal religious figure? Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to own him, right? Uh, uh, in in uh, Buddhism, many Buddhists believe that Jesus is, a, is, is maybe an incarnation of the Buddha himself. If not that, he is a great bodhisattva in the tradition, a man who, who you know, brings people up to the uh, very pinnacle of enlightenment and then backs off to help others. Uh, some Hindus believe that, that Jesus is actually an, uh, an incarnation of Vishnu, right? Of, uh, an avatar. Uh, gee, in, in Islam, in Islam, Jesus emerges as a figure that could be considered greater than Muhammad the prophet himself. When you look at the Quran and you see the picture of Jesus, Jesus ends up being, uh, uh, um, uh, let's put it this way, M Muhammad is a prophet, so it's Muhammad one if you're keeping score, and then, and then Jesus is also called a prophet, but he's also, it, it's acknowledged that he was born of a virgin, that he was a worker of miracles, and that he will stand with Allah at the scales of justice at the end of time. So I'm not sure the exact score, but it's something like, you know, Muhammad one or two and Jesus four, you know, something like that. But that's, I just use that for illustration. Jesus emerges even in Islam as a figure who is revered. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. So if you're a thoughtful Christian or a thoughtful religious seeker and you're on a kind of religious quest, it makes perfect sense that you would start your quest with Christianity. Okay. By the way, I remember ending... <laughs> I'd gone a little long, the students started asking questions, people were coming into the room, you know, because the, the class had ended, the next class was coming in. So I just had to pick up stuff and walk out of the room, and, and a whole bunch of students just followed me right out to some lunch tables, and we just drank coffee and talked through lunchtime. They had never heard anything like this before. Kind of a, uh, a, thought, a thinking person's uh, approach to religion, you know? Uh, that's why the reason it shocked them so much is because they... They have been taught, as so many of us have, that it's really all about closing your eyes and leaping blindly into whatever faith is, is attractive to you. But that is not the case. There really is a God who has spoken, and he has left a tremendous trail of evidence so we wouldn't get it wrong. We can know that there is a God, and we can know our relationship with him. And it's not a good one. There's a broken relationship. And that's why God sent his only begotten son to, to bridge that gap, to heal that relationship, to redeem us and bring us back into fellowship with God because God loves us so much. He wants us to live with him through all eternity in the way he had planned from the very beginning. And I think we can actually know that to be true. That's not just some strange religious narrative that I happen to think uh, is pleasing. I think it's the true story of all that ever was, is, or will be. And that's a strange, you don't hear that on college campuses very often. You can see why I get run off of a few of them. I think we can know these things. Christianity is a knowledge tradition. And I just praise God day after day. I wake up every morning going, I can't believe I signed up for the right one. You know? <laughs> I, really, it stuns me, you know? I'm giddy about these ideas. Wow. You know, because religion in our culture is just supposed to be something unfathomable and unknowable, and yet it appears God has opened the door so we can know these things. And that's what the whole apologetics series this weekend has been about. Why don't you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, our great King, what a joy it is to know that you did not leave us stranded in our own time, but you left a tremendous trail of evidence through history testifying to the great events surrounding your son, so that we could know these things and not be left in the religious lurch. Thank you, Heavenly Father. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they take great courage in this teaching and these ideas, that they would be bold proclaimers of the truth, of the gospel, and of the resurrected Son of God. 
Lord Jesus, there's a, there's a hurting and dying world, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us everything we need to meet those needs in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's uh, hold your applause till the end for Dr. Hazen. I know some of you want to do that. Have a seat, Dr. Hazen. And like we said, we have some questions that you texted in. Thank you so much for that. And Dr. Hazen, let's jump in with uh, a classic that I know you'll be able to tackle, but what do you say? The question came in through, from several people and in various forms, and so I'll try to sum it up. How do I, as a Christian, apply apologetics, say with a Scientologist or someone else, who believes that most of the Bible's truths well, the Bible in general, has been lost through the years, through translation. How do we know we have the right books in the Bible? The canon, so answer that. Yeah, you know, I'll even give you a little technique. I, I, it's good to shake people up a little bit, you know? Go, oh, uh, well, you've gotten that just completely wrong. Then they're like, what? what? You know? No, no, you've gotten that completely wrong. Obviously, you've, you've, I, I don't know where you're getting that stuff. Where, where are you getting that stuff? And they, see, in other words, sometimes when people ask us a question like that, um, we feel on the hook to answer the question. Ask them a question back, right? Like, my goodness, why would you think that? You see, suddenly they'll start talking about their sources, and guess what? It's, it's within about 30 seconds, they'll either be completely confused themselves, or they'll be uh, showing you how unscholarly and, uh, you know, somewhat ridiculous the particular ideas they're presenting are. So here's the golden rule of apologetics. Ask of them as they ask of you. That's a real takeaway, by the way. You can start using that today. And it gives you a little more, uh, uh, it gives you a little more confidence and a little more time to work on dialogue because very often we just start to get nervous because people have asked us a question. Oh, how am I going to answer that? I should have read that book. <laughs> Darn, Five Sacred Crossings, why didn't I read it? You know? Why did I stop? You know? uh, rather than do that, just take a deep breath and ask them the question back. I'm curious, why do you think that's the case? Or, I like to shake them up a little bit, oh my goodness, you couldn't be more wrong. You know, of course, that, that, that just get, prompts them to ask the question, what do you mean? And then you get a chance to have an open door to, to explain the evidence, if you have had a chance to study that material. Yeah, if you have a chance, get the CD or DVD from yesterday that was answered by all three of our panelists. And uh, in a nutshell, uh, correct me where I'm wrong, but um, the books simply stand out, and they were the ones that were used by the early church. Um, so if you were a Christian in the first century and someone brought in a different gospel, which they did because, like today, ghost writers were popular. In other words, hey, I want to write a gospel, but just, just, let's see, Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, and John are taken, so I'm going to come up with the gospel of Peter or Thomas. But the early church saw these as, as fraudulent and rejected them, and, and, and I say early, this was actually 200 years later after the, the, our four core gospels were written. So they're late, they weren't recognized by the church, and it's an entirely different Jesus. My favorite is the Arab infancy gospel, which paints Jesus as a trickster, a prankster. He sees sparrows, he turns them into mud so they'll make splash in the water. He's playing hide and seek, and he turns kids into goats for hiding under in the basement. And uh, so this is the kind of Jesus that is simply not found in the respected um, and understood and accepted gospels. So people read that early on and said, this is not the same Jesus and they rejected him. And that, again, rejection came 200 years later than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, Am I very, right? It's a very weak position. It really is. The, the idea that, uh, uh, that, that Christians kind of, the, the winners in history made up what goes into the New Testament. The church recognized it very early on. There's just no question about that. There, there were a couple of legitimate questions about a couple of the books of the New Testament, but, but by and large, it, it's completely intact from, from the earliest days. Yes. Uh, another set of questions were centered around your very good handling of the Holocaust story and the problem of evil. And the questions had this slant to them. They wanted you to expound on, yes, there's evil, but it seems to be, as was brought up yesterday, just an excessive amount of it from our perspective. Could you yeah. touch on that? Yeah. Uh, my, my main point I was making was that uh, there's, there's uh, two ways to handle religion or, or the problem of evil coming from say, Western religious traditions and Eastern religious traditions, that Eastern religious traditions tend to approach evil and pain and suffering as, as an illusion that needs to be brushed aside. So I was really just making the case uh, in my presentation that uh, evil's real and we need to deal with it. Now, in terms of the amount of evil, oh my goodness, I'm totally with you if you're asking that question. Why, God? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why are we so frustrated? Why are there murders and people starving to death in the Sudan right now? 
good Lord, isn't there another way? But at the end of the day, I have to say, God, I am not you. You see everything. I have to trust you at the end of the day. I don't understand that. And I think we need to be honest with our non-Christian friends. Wow, it troubles me too. I don't understand this. Uh, we have a full course in this at, at Biola in the master's program. It's called, Why Does God Allow Evil? And it really does take a full semester to unpack this issue. But the basic answer is this, sin. Sin is at the center of all of it. And God, at the end of the day, he hates sin. And he sees God hates what's going on in a sinful world too. But he will make it right one day. It, we, as a human race, shook our fist at God and said, we're going to go our own way, and we are reaping the whirlwind. We are seeing the results of that. Still, from my vantage point, how can I reconcile you know, my, uh, uh, you know, my Christian faith with so much evil? It's very difficult, and it ought to be difficult for every Christian. We ought not to shy away from the difficulty of that. But at the, end, at the, at the center point of it is the problem of sin. Mm. Yeah, and as a, your missions pastor, when I travel, I see a direct correspondence between difficulty of life and turning to Jesus. The Southern Hemisphere is booming like never before in the history of the world mm -hmm. for Christ. And I also see where people have life at ease, far fewer come to Christ. So from an eternal perspective, which one do you want to be, the poor man that finds Jesus or the rich man that doesn't? And so just another insight into that. Um, also, uh, people wanted to know this. Uh, the Bible seems to call us to faith. So doesn't apologetics undermine that call? Ooh, good question. Um, when we're asking that kind of question, we're generally mis misunderstanding what the Bible means by faith. We're using a, a definition that's really been given to us by the secular world. What the secular world means by faith is the kind of thing that Puddinghead Wilson was talking about. Faith is believing what you know ain't so, or it's believing that which you can't possibly know. In fact, check this out. This is from an op-ed piece in the LA Times as an engineering professor at, the, at USC in Southern California, and he, he basically defined faith this way. And he's wrong. This is not the biblical definition of faith. He says, faith is unwarranted belief. Faith, faith is belief without evidence or despite evidence to the contrary. Faith occurs when a person believes that something is true even though he suspects it's false. It takes large amounts of such faith to support the very existence of casinos, psychic hotlines, astrology columns, mall Santas, and most organized religions. See, is that what Christian faith is about? According to Bart Costco, and according to the secular world, it, it certainly is. But that's not the biblical definition. The biblical definition of faith is not opposed to knowledge at all. Faith is simply translated trust. Are you trusting God? Now, I'm trusting God while at the same time standing on a huge amount of evidence and knowledge. By the way, I could have all of that evidence and knowledge and still not trust God, you see. So the real point at which I really connect with God is when I trust Him. I give myself to Him. That's what Christian faith is, and it's not opposed to knowledge. Another group of questions has had to do with, here's an easy one for you. Uh -oh. <laughs> Trudy's got one. <laughs> You know, Trudy, when you're Trudy, you have the right to come on up and give a question yourself, so that's all right. Uh, before that one, this, a grouping that came up was on the topic of predestination and God will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion and not, not. Could you flesh that out for us? It seems rather uh, like God is playing favorites or something, and it's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... No, I really can't. That's not enough time. <laughs> right. this, is, this is a tough question. I do think there, there are some possible answers to it. In fact, there are several possible answers that are, that are all offered up by, by Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians. If this, one, if this one troubles you, how to reconcile the idea that, that uh, uh, God is a God of love and mercy, and does he really predestine some to salvation and some to hell? I recommend you, you look up a, a, a view on this called middle knowledge. Sometimes it's called Molinism, middle knowledge or Molinism. One of my colleagues is actually one of the world's experts on this particular approach to the question. It gets a bit theological and philosophical, but I think it's sound. I think it really does reconcile the options, but it takes uh, you know, a good bit of time to unpack that. But 
middle knowledge or Molinism. You can actually Google or Google William Lane Craig and those terms, and I think you'll be in good shape to start exploring that. Tell me if I can sum that up in one sentence. Middle knowledge isn't that you're the middle child. It is that you are, um, God looks down the corridors of time and he knows which group or which scenario of creation or universe in which the most amount of people will come to him and he chooses that universe. That's the middle part. Am I yes, correct? that's right. Okay, thanks. Well, you taught it's, me that. It's so great to have one of our students doing this. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you know. Okay, um, and uh, may, uh, a great practical question. Uh, when you talk about Christianity being different from other religions, how is it different and how would you, give us an example of how that difference helps you in day-to-day -day experience. Maybe the water cooler type well, thing. We, well, we live in a pluralistic society. I mean, there are so many different religions. And, and there, there, there's a couple of approaches to this. You can either say, wow, well, what are we going to do with all these religions? Do we just find ways to embrace them all? Maybe they are all paths to God. Is that the case or not? That's a very important question that we as Christians, that, which is traditionally an exclusivistic faith, I mean, we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and that's troubled a lot of people over the years. So from that standpoint, understanding how Christianity is set apart is very helpful in understanding uh, how it's set apart in a pluralistic environment. That is where you have so many different religions claiming uh, to, to bring you to God or to salvation. What's a loving way in our day, in our world, to, uh, it, as Christ would do it, reach out to someone, someone in Islam? Because this is the growing, this is the one of the news. Yeah. How do we lovingly do that in a way that Christ would be proud of us in our approach? Yes. Well, when you start to understand uh, Allah in the Islamic system, it's, he's not a God who you want to cozy up to necessarily, you know? Uh, the picture that's painted of God in, in the New Testament, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, a wise, loving Savior who so wants the best for us. And he's, he's just dying to gather us as a chick would gather her brood, you know. Uh, that's the picture of God in the New Testament that's provided for us. Uh, I, I, presenting God in that fashion is very attractive to Muslims because they wonder. Many of them never know if they're in good standing with Allah, yet their deeds are going to be put in the balance at the end of times, and it really is all about their good works. What if there was another way? And they do revere Jesus, so what if the words of Jesus are, it's not about your works. I will do the work for you. Come unto me, and I will give you rest and real peace. That is a message that uh, I've moved many of my, uh, I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, moved some of my uh, Muslim friends. Wow. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. But what we'll do is um, we have your texts, and it might take me and the staff a couple weeks, but we will, if we have your text uh, email, we'll write back an answer to you. And you can always contact us at renee at tlc.org. I'm kidding. Paul at TLC. Paul at TLC. Uh, Val, anybody else? Adam, we love this kind of stuff. We stay up late and we probably shouldn't answer these things, so be sure to bring them to us. And uh, you were at the White House what year, Trudy wants to know? Uh, I was at the White House. It was during the Bush administration, I remember that. In fact, I gave, I gave uh, George and Laura a copy of the book. <laughs> I don't know if they read it, but they sent me a nice thank you note. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, give them a big hand. Thank you. Thank you.